the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15, and I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled From Reconciliation to Restoration. From Reconciliation to Restoration. We'll begin in verse 11 and read down to verse 24. Uh, I was hoping this would be our last and final week and we may have to come back to pick up, pick up some of the pieces at the end. I have great ambitions week after week and uh, just trying to balance everything in uh, family, school, uh, work, everything. I never seem to get there, uh, but we're going to go from 25 to 32, hopefully, uh, next week as we come together. But I wanted to take one final run, one last look at this incredible portion of Scripture again, because there is something that is absolutely astonishing here for us as believers. There is an immense, amazing truth here, and it is full of rich doctrine that I don't want you to miss as we look at the restoration of this prodigal son. If we were to say that the, the father's loving response to the return of his son was the ice cream Sunday last week, I think that this text that we have before us is the whipped cream and the cherry on top. Now, as we've been looking at this text and this chapter of the last few weeks, all of Chapter 15 here is Jesus' response to the allegation from the Pharisees and the scribes that he receives tax collectors and sinners. They see him actively looking for them. And they are having a major heartache over it. And Jesus gives us these three parables in succession in order to answer that allegation. And the parable of the prodigal son would have been probably the most over-the-top in light of their Jewish sensibilities. From the dishonoring of the father and this son's demand of his inheritance to the eating of the pods with the pigs, all of this would have been disgusting and revolting to the first century Jew. And we can only imagine their indignation as they listen to Jesus teach on the restoration of this prodigal son. Because the portrait of the love of this father and the forgiveness of this Father, that Jesus is painting in this parable here is completely over the top and contrary to the Pharisees' understanding of the true saving heart of God. And as we're going to see this week and into the next week, Jesus is not going to hold back in exposing their ignorance of the God that they claim to worship truly and so purely. And so I want to jump into our text real quick this morning, starting in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, and read these verses together. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11, God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word says this, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he became, began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. 
And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost, and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We just pray, Lord, as we have our Bibles opened on our lap, that you would speak to us through it. That you would use the voice of a mere man to communicate your great truths. Father, we want to honor you and cherish you and love you. Help your word enrich our hearts for this purpose. Father, help us to stay focused and hear what you have to say to us this day. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Suppose that someone were to read to you the parable of the prodigal son for the very first time. And you heard of this son's demand to get his inheritance from his father. And you saw how he wasted it in a faraway land on wine, women, and song until he was completely broken destitute. And you heard of this famine which came upon the land and how this prodigal became so bankrupt and impoverished that he found himself eating with pigs. And you, you heard about how he sees his lowly condition and then starts to remember his father's goodness and his kindness that he demonstrated even to his hired hands. To such an extent that they themselves were never in want of any bread and they always had an excess because of the father's generosity. And you listen to the parable of how the prodigal made his way back home. And you would hear of this father, how he sees him from a long way off. And he runs to him. And he embraces him. And kisses him. And that is all you heard. If the parable stopped right there, right there in verse 20, and that's all you ever heard of the saving nature of God, that in itself should be enough to fill you with wonder and amazement. You'd have a picture of the sinfulness of sin. You'd have the image of the depth of the depravity of man. You'd have a picture of faith. You'd have a picture of the mercy of God. You would have a picture of the forgiveness of God. And you would have a picture of the wondrous love of God. 
And if that's all we ever had from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, this earthly story that represents a spiritual reality, that's what a parable is, this word picture of the application of redemption to hell-bound sinners, this in itself should be enough for us to be amazed at God's goodness and His mercy. If we are the lost sheep, and we are this lost coin, and we are this lost prodigal in this chapter, and all we got to was verse 20, with the Father lavishing His love upon us as we come to Him in repentance and faith, opening His arms to us, embracing us, loving on us with kiss after kiss after kiss, that we finally come home to Him. That, that should be enough to cause us to marvel and just be filled with wonder that our Heavenly Father would ever do such a thing. The greatness of our Father's love, the wonders of His forgiveness to us, His magnitude of His compassion and tenderness, His forbearance and His patience with us, His kindness towards us as disobedient children. If that is all we had, if that's all Jesus gave us in this parable, that in itself would be staggering. Staggering. Because none of that was ever given to us because we deserved it. And the truth of the matter is, is that God is under no obligation to give us any of the blessings that He ever gives to us. God never owes anyone anything ever. Job 41.11 says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. But out of His goodness, but out of God's mercy, but out of God's grace, He gives us the unspeakable blessing of the forgiveness of our sins if we come to Him in faith and repentance. And yet at the same time, we need to stop and think of the alternatives and think to ourselves, what if there was no Father to come home to? What if the Father treated us the same way we treat Him? What if the Father said to us, you know what, you're on probation, and if you slip up one more time, you're back on that street. What if the Father slammed the door in our face as soon as we opened up and He saw us? There could have been an endless number of possibilities how this could have turned out badly for this prodigal, and, and it could have been bad for us as well. But thanks be to God for His kindness and His mercy towards us. Titus chapter 3, beginning of verse 3, says this, For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. It's all the mercy of God. It's all of the grace of God. Grace is the causative action of your faith in Him. The washing and the regenerating of the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
But as one commentator put it, this prodigal, he came back to his father between hope and fear. The fear that he would be rejected and hope that he would be received. And yet the father was not only better to him than his fears, but also better to him of his hopes. Because our father is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And it ended far better than we or the prodigal could have ever hoped or dreamed. But Jesus Christ did not leave us in verse 20. The Father doesn't just give us forgiveness for our sins. He doesn't just wrap His arms around us, loving on us, as if all of that in and of itself is a miracle, but He gives us so much more. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how could you possibly improve on the love and the kindness and the grace that God has displayed for us here in the prodigal son? I think that's what verse 22 and beyond demonstrates for us. Let's begin in verse 21 where he left off last time with the son being wrapped in his father's loving arms. Notice in verse 21 with me where it says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, first of all, notice that this son says exactly what he had rehearsed back in verse 18 and 19 of our text, minus the statement about being made one of his father's servants. But his resolve to return to the father and confess his sin to his father comes to fruition. He follows through with his confession. He doesn't even try to defend himself or his actions. And he might have become distracted by the overwhelming expression of love that his father had given him. He might have been overcome with emotion himself at seeing the outpouring of joy that his father had lavished on him. And he could have easily just seen to to watch and, and see how all this played out, seeing that the father had obviously already accepted him. But none of that happens. This is a son who has felt the weight of his sin against his father. He feels the the gravitas of his transgressions against the father that has obviously loved him. And he wants to express his heart to him just as the father has so lavishly expressed his heart to this prodigal. Because he wants reconciliation. He wants restoration with his father. That's what repentance and confession does for you before God. And regular confession should be a normative experience of your Christian life. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I want you to also notice that this is also a a demonstration of this prodigal's true humility. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. As Augustine once said, if you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay deep foundations of humility. Because this is the only way that a sinner can come before God. And that is with a penitent, contrite, and humble heart. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. The way up is down, 
A broken heart will be a healed heart. A repenting soul will be a victorious soul. And if you want to soar higher and higher unto God the Father, you must lay low in true humility. Rather than self-exaltation, rather than pride, what is a sweet aroma before God that is pleasing to Him from your life is a heart that is contrite, that is broken, and that is humbled before Him. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalm 51, 17, he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Isaiah 57, 15 says for us, for thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is where any sensible, godly, victorious man or woman lives. And that is in a state of humility before Almighty God. He knows his utter lack of self-sufficiency. He knows his spiritual bankruptcy. He knows his inability to do anything before Christ. He knows that all he has has been given to him by his Father. So, beloved, how is your humility before God this morning? When was the last time that you took time to confess your sins before God? When was the last time that you prayed that your heart may stay soft and humble and broken before God? And so as this son, he confesses his sin. He confesses his unworthiness. And he casts himself before the mercy of the Father. Notice that he doesn't get the chance to ask to be made like one of his servants' hired hands. Because the Father doesn't give him that opportunity. Look at verse 22 with me. Verse 22 says, But the Father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Now, observe first of all that the Father addresses the slaves. He doesn't address the son. Not one word of why didn't you stay with your friends and your harlots. Not one word of rebuke. Not one word of indignation. Not one bit of irritating advice to his sons that we earthly fathers sometimes like to give. And that's because complete, total, full, exhaustive and absolute forgiveness is the only kind of forgiveness that the Father ever gives. As Corey Ten Boom would say, quote, God has taken our sin, he has thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness, and he has posted a sign that says, no fishing allowed. He never looks at you and says to you, well, we'll see how this goes. He never says to you, you know what, let's give this a shot for a while and then maybe we'll have a talk about all that later. There's nothing of the like here. And that's because the Father freely, 
wholly and completely forgives you and will never bring your sins before your face again. Ezekiel 18, verse 21 and 22 says this, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die, and his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 says this, Who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. The Father blots out your past and he will never Bring it before you again. That's good news this morning. That's great news. He never throws it back in your face. And so this father, he doesn't rebuke or address the son because his mind is filled with other things. He has a singularity of purpose. He has a resolve in his mind towards other things. And he says to his slaves, quickly, Make haste. Don't delay. Don't waste time. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Compared to the clothing that he had on him, any set of clothes would have probably done the job. Because he probably came to his father with tattered rags and he probably smelled like a pig. But the father tells the slaves, bring out the best robe. The best robe. Bring out the principal robe. Bring out the robe that is for special occasions. And the language here has sort of a a double emphasis on it as if it's to say it's the robe that that is set apart and you know exactly the one I mean. Because the word best here is often translated first in the New Testament. It's a distinction of priority. Among all the other robes that I have in the house, Bring the first robe. Bring the finest robe. My best robe. And put it on him. This is a symbol of status for this prodigal. This is the way to demonstrate this prodigal's restored prominence and prestige. Much like Pharaoh did to Joseph when he promoted him to vice regent in Genesis chapter 41 verse 42. It says that Pharaoh placed a garment of fine linen upon him. The father wants nothing but the best placed on his son. He wants him ornately dressed. He doesn't clean up his life. He doesn't clean himself up first. But the best robe is placed upon him immediately. And you and I have received God's very best robe when we come to him in faith and repentance. We have been clothed in Christ. We have been given God's principle, his best, his most glorious robe that he has. And that is the righteous robe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this. And this is a verse that you need to meditate upon and memorize. But it says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me 
with a robe of righteousness. You can't get any better clothing than this. In fact, you will never come before the Father without this clothing. But the beautiful thing is, is that what God requires, Christ provides. If you remember what we said about righteousness, it's like a, it's like a scale. And as you place God's holy standard on it, God's law on one side, and you place yourself on the other side, we find ourselves not moving the scale and bringing it into balance. Our works of righteousness are like filthy rags, much like this prodigal is wearing on his back. And the only way that you and I can bring that scale into balance is to have the robe of righteousness that Christ places on us. There is nothing else that will cover our filthy rags of righteousness, but the glorious robe of the righteousness of Christ is secured by his life and his death. And God will never, ever take that robe from you once he has placed it upon you. He's not an Indian giver, as they used to say. Jeremiah Burroughs once wrote in The Saint's Happiness, he said this, quote, It is impossible for a soul that God the Father shall look upon him in the righteousness of his Son and yet miscarry to eternity. It can never be. In the righteousness, we have bold access to the throne of grace before God's infinite holiness and justice. We stand before his judgment seat fully pardoned in the court of justice. We are clothed with a glorious robe of the righteousness of Christ. And when Jesus Christ shall appear, and God the Father, and the holy angels, this robe shall cover the souls of believers. Christ's robe will adorn and beautify the saints in the day of judgment before God. This robe will take away the terror of that day. Beloved, as God looks down upon you this very moment, and you are in Christ, and you have placed all of your hope and all of your faith and all of your proud confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, He sees you gloriously and beautifully covered in the righteous robe of His dear Son. It's the best robe that He could ever give you. So that now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your righteousness because that's his filthy rags. But he sees Christ's perfect righteousness. Listen, it does not matter if you had your best week ever, if you evangelized until your toes tingled, until you came to a church and preached your best sermon ever. All of that is unrighteousness before God. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I don't know what kind of week that you had, but this is the best news that we could ever get this morning. But notice, He gives you even more. He gives you more than this. He tells the slaves, put a ring on His hand. In other words, it's a, a symbol of reputation and authority that is placed on His finger. It's a, a symbol of wealth and prestige that's placed upon him. Much like in James chapter 2, verse 2, it warned us not to show partiality to someone who walks into the assembly with a gold ring on his hand. Because a ring was a symbol that you had wealth and prominence and reputation. Because only rich people would wear rings in those days. 
And it was also a symbol of identification. Again, in Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh gave Joseph a signet ring to place upon his hand, symbolizing that he was part of the ruling family. In the book of Esther, a signet ring was given to Haman by the king as a symbol of identification and authority. And a signet ring typically would have a family coat of arms or a crest or a symbol on it, demonstrating that he, this prodigal, was now back as part of the family. And he would use that ring to sign it and seal documents on the behalf of his family whom he identified with. But this, beloved, is really a a demonstration of our adoption into God's family. If justification is the legal declaration that one has received the forgiveness of sin and has received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ because he met the standard of the law on your behalf, adoption is the declaration that the divine judge is now making you part of his family. Not only are your sins forgiven... Not only is Christ's righteousness given to you, but God says to you, you are now my son and my daughter. You're not only regenerated, you're not only justified, but you get all the rights and all the privileges of being a member of God's eternal family. It's no wonder J.I. Packer calls this the highest privilege that the gospel has to offer. And John Murray has said that this is the apex of grace and privilege. And it's no wonder that John bursts forth in praise in 1 John 3, 1, when he says, Behold or see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Adoption is all over the Bible. We don't have to go through them all, but listen to Ephesians 1.3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And beloved... There are so many privileges that come with the blessing of being adopted into God's family. We are made partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. We are indwelt with the Spirit of God Himself in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 16. We are fellow heirs with Christ of eternal life in Romans 8.17 and 1 Peter 1.4. And we have been so highly exalted by God that Christ himself is called our brother in Romans 8.29 and Hebrews 2.17. And Jesus Christ is not in the least bit ashamed to call us our brother. Hebrews 2.11 and 12. I wonder... How would you live your Christian life 
any differently if you would meditate upon this glorious truth more? What would you do differently if you reminded yourself more frequently that you are God's son and you are God's daughter? If we enjoy such a a high and exalted position as the adopted children of God into the family of God, enjoying all the rights and privileges as the sons and daughters of the Almighty Himself, how then should we live? But notice that the Father, He also calls for some sandals to be put on His feet. Going barefoot, contrary to what many of you like to do, was a sign of humiliation. And to an even further extent, it was a sign of slavery. 2 Samuel 15.30 describes those who were destitute and enslaved as being naked and barefoot. And having a pair of sandals was a luxury. In other words... This was another symbol of honor bestowed upon this son. As if the robe wasn't enough and the ring wasn't enough, the father lavished on him a pair of sandals for his feet. This was a demonstration that full sonship was now fully his. And so, beloved, do you see how this prodigal was so graciously and wonderfully treated by his father. We don't just get forgiveness of sins. How wonderful that is. We don't just get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How beautiful that is. We are part of God's family. We are his sons and daughters. And we don't just relate to him as a giver of spiritual life and a provider of forgiveness, but God is and wants to be intimate with us like a loving Heavenly Father. Do you find God desirable and not just reliable? Do you see your Father as someone who enjoys you And loves you. And do you see him as someone that you long to be with and to enjoy? Do you delight in him? Do you desire him? Do you long to please him in all respects? Do you long to be with your father for all of eternity? As one who does not remember ever being hugged or embraced by my father. I long for that day. Do you long for that day? Do you long to be able to see God face to face in the future? Do you long today to commune with him? To enjoy him? Not just in the future, but today? Day after day, not just on Sunday where you hear his word preached and we pray and we sing about him, but day after day, do you want to be intimate with your father? Because he wants to be intimate with you. He has given you every spiritual blessing. He's given you his word. He's given you access to him through prayer so that you can boldly pray to him. 
Do you long for that? Do you desire that? God wants us to be intimate with Him as He has been intimate with us as a loving Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the many blessings that You've given to us in Christ Jesus. You don't look upon us and see our righteousness, which is nothing but rags. But you look upon us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to walk in these truths. Help us to meditate upon this and embrace this and long to be with you day after day. Father, we thank you for this day. We want to honor you and walk with you and cherish you. Help us to that end, Lord, we pray. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for the word of truth. fellowship afterwards we speak of your word delight delightfully when you bless this time we have together and we enjoy it thank you for the food 
and the people that have prepared that for us. In Christ's name.